wrestling fans, are you ready? This is Tuesday. You people bought a ticket to see me, so shut up. Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood. First of all, Dusty Rose, I think what you are is a big, ugly, low-class redneck dude. That's what I think you are. Yeah, I put it. I know I put it. But I'm most of all the baddest man around in the world today. Follow the show at WrestlingTWT on Twitter and Instagram. But remember, my fireflies, as always, I'll light the way. And all you have to do is let me in. Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. The bottom line is... Here's Jonathan Hood. What's up, everybody? Welcome in to another edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Hood. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at WrestlingTWT. Also on Facebook, Facebook.com, Jonathan Hood. A lot of you left me questions. We have a Q&A segment on this edition of TWT. Also, we will hear from Renee Young. Have you heard from Renee Young since she left Parted Ways with the WWE? You will hear from Renee Young on this podcast. Also, you hear from Miro, the former Rusev. No more Rusev Day. It's now Miro Day in AEW, so we'll hear from him. And a lot more in this edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Tell people Jonathan Hood talks wrestling Tuesday, wrestling Tuesday. And wherever you're listening to us from, wherever you are, thanks so much for downloading the podcast. I want to get your feedback on my Facebook wall, facebook.com, Jonathan Hood, or at uthpods at outlook.com, uthpods at outlook.com. I'll put it up there at the beginning of our podcast. Sometimes I either forget or put it at the back end. So UTH pods, P-O-D-S, at Outlook.com if you'd like to jump in with any questions or comments you have about our podcast, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Okay, we've got a lot to get to here. Let me start off first with this. I lower the um, mid-Atlantic old-school music here from back in the day. I want to talk to you a little bit about selling in wrestling. Selling. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, it's interesting. I've been watching wrestling for a long time. And wrestling to me is like a movie or a television show. You're just supposed to suspend disbelief. A lot of people are really into the technical side of wrestling because of the Dave Meltification of wrestling. You know, the newsletters, the dirt sheets have really exposed wrestling. Hell, Vince McMahon has exposed wrestling for a long time for what it is. The magic is not there. I remember a interview done by Bobby Heenan. I think it was really before cancer really ravaged his body. It's on YouTube where someone asked, do you believe that the genie can be put back in the bottle? He said, no, it's done. I think this was after his WCW tenure. And he just said, no, it's done. Like, the magic of wrestling is is never going to return. And I still believe that you can make magic in the ring. We've seen this with, like, classic matches or great storylines. They're few and far in between, in my view, but you can still make that magic. But it's interesting to hear from two wrestling experts over the past week talking about the art of selling. 
Now, what is a sell? If you're a wrestling fan listening to this podcast, you know what selling is. But for those that are not familiar with the term selling, look, you know, if Seth Rollins pushes, punches Dominic Mysterio, you want Mysterio to react to that punch or to that suplex or to that a move that is done, right? You want to be able to see a wrestler feel like he's hurt. And a lot of times in wrestling, talking to wrestlers over the years, wrestlers are hurt, maybe not injured, but definitely hurt. Like, oh, my God, you know, that punch registered. That was a solid punch or that particular wrestling move. It does hurt. You know, the whole thing is just not so phony that all these moves don't have some kind of ramifications, either short term or long term. So uh, you and I both know that as wrestling fans. So what I'm saying is something that you already know. But I just want to put that out there because selling still matters in wrestling. I shouldn't have to think about it. Right. If I'm watching any match on any wrestling show, if the action is good. And if there is a wrestler that went out of his way to surprise us or to showcase a certain move, you would imagine the other person would say, wow, I'm I'm hurt or would show you either through facials or holding the body part that hurts. Like, oh, my, you know, that this guy really got me or this girl really got me. Right. You would think that that would be the case. Selling still matters in wrestling. And it's nothing I think about, but when I see the lack of selling in wrestling, it is something that is on my mind. There is no doubt. It's on the mind also of Bully Ray, the former Bubba Ray Dudley, who hosts the show with my friend Dave LaGreca on SiriusXM uh, Busted Open Radio. Also, some thoughts from Jim Cornette about the same thing, about the art of selling. So here's where we are with this. This is why this topic came up. So I'm watching AEW, uh, the Dynamite show, the 37th episode, season two of AEW. And I am watching a Lucha Brothers versus Jurassic Express match, right? Marco stunts in the corner for Jurassic Express and Eddie Kingston's in the corner for the Lucha Brothers. And so Jungle Boy is put in the position of a package pile driver. And so the Lucha Brothers execute this move. The the package pile drivers execute it. The referee does not go for a count yet. He's slow to get over to get the count. And it becomes a two count. Now, I've seen the Lucha Brothers, and I'm watching this as I tell you uh, what happened in this particular show. So... I've seen the Lucha Brothers win with this move in MLW, in Mexico. I've seen them win with this package pile driver. That's their finish. But yet, Jungle Boy kicks out. Now, as he kicks out, he's able to stand back up and be able to lead one of the Lucha Brothers into the other. So there is a pile driver, uh, a a pile driver on the Lucha Brothers by mistake, and then one, two, three, the roll up, and Jungle Boy gets the pinfall. Now, here's the thing about that, right? As I watch this, Jungle Boy looks like looks fresh as a daisy, as if he did not have a pile driver administered to him. He's on the apron after their match. He's sitting on the apron with Luchasaurus, and they're sitting side by side discussing the match. 
instead of just going up the ramp and holding their necks or whatever and selling, they're just sitting on the ramp, sitting on the, the apron of the ring side by side in the hard camera shot and just having a discussion. Like, Jungle Boy's not selling the move. I mean, he, he received a package pile driver. It's as if he just got a side headlock and it seems fresh as a daisy. It's the weirdest thing I've seen this year in 2020. I mean, the Lucha Brothers, have I've seen them. I know I'm not crazy. I've seen them win matches with that maneuver. And if you go back and just look at it for yourself, look at the the closing moments of that tag team match with Jurassic Express and, and the Lucha Brothers. And... Again, the Lucha Brothers, they put on that package, that package pile driver, and somehow Jungle Boy is able to stand up, reverse the maneuver, the Lucha Brothers mess up, and then one, two, three. And then after the match, Jungle Boy is just kind of just sitting there with Luchasaurus side by side on the apron and just kind of talking like nothing happened. It's weird. It is so strange for the young wrestlers how they equate video game wrestling with real wrestling. I guess they watch new, some of the New Japan or they watch Independence where I have a spot, you have a spot, you have a spot, I have a spot, you have a spot, I have a spot. A, B, A, B, B, A, B, A, up, down, up, down, back, back, back. A, B, A, B, like what is going on here? Like that doesn't happen in, on the movies doesn't happen on TV shows, but for some of these independent shows or what we see in AEW, there is hardly any selling on the show. Now, there's something I shouldn't notice, but it's so egregious in this match. It is the most egregious I've seen in 2020. Someone puts a package pile driver on someone. It's like, okay, cool. I'm good. Let me reverse this maneuver. One, two, three. Who's the agent for that match? And was there any conversation afterwards? Some thoughts from Bully Ray from Busted Open about this matchup and the art of selling. Because people are saying, I just don't get it. How could you possibly like that show with the wrestling matches that they're putting on? Because a lot of fans are questioning the quality of the matches because of the psychology, because of the lack of selling. So before we went to break, I told you there was one thing that really stood out to me that that bothered me. And I, I would never allow this to happen personally. And I don't know why they do it. First match of the night, Luchasaurus and um, uh, Jungle, Jungle, Jungle Boy. Boy. Yep. Against the Lucha Brothers. Yep. Lucha Brothers are have been presented in AEW as a pretty strong tag team, correct? Yes. All right. End of the match, the Lucha Brothers hit a top rope package pile driver double team on Jungle Boy. They get a two count. And then right after that, there's a misdirection. Jungle Boy scoops up one of the other Lucha Brothers and gets the win and then just rolls out and sits on the apron. I don't know about you, Dave. But in the world of pro wrestling I come from, you get hit with a package pile driver, you're getting stretched out. Now, I know they're not going to stretch her amount last night, but you got to sell that move a lot more. 
And whoever the agent is for that match has to recommend to those guys that that move gets sold a lot more. I'm not saying that Jungle Boy can't get up after the move once it is sold properly. So they could have hit that move on him. He could have kicked out, but it would have probably been better to make a save because nobody should be kicking out of a package pile driver unless you're Hulk Hogan, you know, in 19, uh, you know, 85 and about to Hulk up. So Jungle Boy is a smaller dude taking a monster double team move of a pile driver. Luchasaurus could have very easily made the save. They could have did a little transition stuff with Luchasaurus, where Luchasaurus would have gotten bumped out also. In this time that they're working with Luchasaurus, Jungle Boy is still on the cell, still on the cell. And now, as he's struggling to get to his feet, the Lucha Bros go for that other double team move. Jungle Boy gets out of the way. The partner gets sunset flipped. And now Jungle Boy scoops the other guy up, gets the one, two, three, and then goes right back down to the cell. That's what makes sense. That's how you do that if you absolutely positively have to get a package pile driver in. It's that lack of registering and lack of selling that, in my opinion, hurts that company. Because it's very easy to tighten those screws. It's very easy to incorporate more psychology into your matches. It's very easy to incorporate more selling and registering. Once again, I'm not saying don't do the moves you want to do. I am not saying don't do the package pile driver. What I am saying is please register, but most importantly, sell it properly so you can keep the credibility on the move otherwise you're going to blow through all this shit nothing's going to ever matter and now you're going to have to do two package pile drivers and three package pile drivers when does it become too much and with veterans there in the back who are supposed to be agents helping out, it's mind-boggling to me that this stuff happens. So I say to myself, okay, maybe Luchasaurus doesn't know better. Maybe Jungle Boy doesn't know better. Maybe the Lucha Brothers don't know better. And the Lucha Brothers probably don't know better because their style of wrestling is strictly spot, 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 spot. But I'm thinking, don't the agents there know better? Some good thoughts there from Bully Ray, for uh, courtesy of SiriusXM's Busted Open with my friend Dave LaGreca. Yeah. You know, I've always thought, and again, I come from a whole different generation of wrestling fans, that more than half the moves that we see are finishers. They're finishers. You don't have to hit an opponent or a tag team with... A dozen different moves that could be considered finishers. Because to me, if you're going to extend a feud, you want to be able to uh, showcase that you could do more than the 12 moves that are just one counts or two counts. You could be able to just get it done with wrestling moves and then build a crescendo up to one of the many moves that we see that could be finishers. Those two counts could be three counts. And it can extend a feud. 
but that's just wrestling. Even today in 2020, you can extend a feud, and as long as the payoff is great, as long as the action between the two or the four or the six or whatever is great, you don't necessarily have to have a two-week feud, three-week feud, and then in those matches have a dozen finishes. That package pile driver, just what I thought. That used I I was looking back at some of the stuff I've recorded. That has been a finisher for them in AAA, the Lucha Brothers, or I believe it's been a finisher in AEW. But the point is, is that after that match is done, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus seem fresh as a daisy. Like, okay, well, it's game over. Like you would say on my video game console, we'll just hit the reset button and go to another game. It's not a game if you want people to believe. And so, and that's the whole thing. Even with the movie, even with a TV show, even though you and I know that it's fiction, we suspend disbelief long enough to be able to enjoy what is on the screen. The same thing with wrestling. Some of the stuff, uh, especially from uh, from Luchasaurus, he's quite a character. There's no doubt, but he's not laying any of that stuff in. Where to the point where, as a big man, he is the lightest striking big man that I can remember. That was in a prominent role. Think about The Undertaker, Kane. Think about those two in particular, how big those guys are and how they were able to lay it in. It's a different generation. I understand that. But it's about teaching. And this is what you're getting with NXT because there's so many different trainers uh, under Triple H's banner, under Vince McMahon's uh, banner, under their programs that they have. And then you compare that to AEW. There's, there is a need for some retraining for some of these guys that might have gotten done in the indies, but not on national TV. And so a good point by Bully Ray. Interestingly enough, that same AEW Dynamite show that just aired uh, last week, Jim Cornette and Brian Last on the Jim Cornette Experience talked about that same thing, about the art of selling. Then the Lucha Brothers and Dino did some klutzy Lucha, and thank God Dino got his backflip in, standing backflip in every on a cover for a two count. Just threw it away as usual, but everybody's seen it a million times. Um, oh, and then after Dino was finished stinking the joint out, did you see him walk over and just give Jungle Boy a flat-footed tag? Just walked over, just from flat-footed tag. Boom, you come back in. And then Felix, who's the heel, cut both Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy off by himself and then hit a move on both of them at the same time. Had one hooked over his back and leg dropped the other one. Not only the fucking giant Luchasaurus, but the Jungle Boy as well and the fact that one heel is stopping and out wrestling two baby faces right up. Uh, God damn. Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle, I wrote, spinning in their graves. And then finally, they did the goddamn deal they do in every match. And we've talked about this. It'd be a fine looking finish if they could leave it well enough alone. The package pile driver and the other Lucha brother comes with the double stomp to the guy in the pile driver's ass to, to drive him harder down in like a stuffed pile driver, right? And the, the way they do it, that looks pretty good. That should be a hospitalization angle, obviously, but it, at least it could be a finish. 
But then the guy that does the double stomp every single time has to jump up, hit the far ropes, and do a dive from the side he just came from onto the baby face that somehow is in that position on that exact same side of the ring every single time they hit that fucking move. I don't know how it happens. I was there at MLW when they did it. It was a finish. That move was a finish, but the fucking dive afterwards killed the whole thing because the people were looking at the dive and popped on it and missed the finish. But that also means that the TV crew that has to shoot the finish is on the fucking cover in the middle of the ring and misses the dive. Now they're doing it for a false finish. The fucking, they hit the fucking jungle boy with the goddamn package pile driver, double foot stomp. And then of course, do the, did the dive on dino and jungle boy kicked out of that. And then was immediately somehow after this devastating finishing maneuver, fresh as a daisy. And somehow Brian, was I, was I on, did I have a reaction, a bad reaction to some type of over-the-counter cold medicine? Or did I see Jungle Boy jump up after this stuff package pile driver and toss one of the Lucha Brothers into the other one so that one Lucha Brother gave his own partner a Canadian Destroyer? That was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. I couldn't believe that. I actually watched, I, I rewound it live i was watching live and have dvr i rewound it to see that again i couldn't believe just how stupid to come up with the idea and then execute that during a match what it, oh i'll let you just a dumpster fucking fire of a match and you know what i guarantee you that was the the that that was the lucha brothers finish I guarantee you, because in in Mexico, in Lucha, that would be a creative, cool finish. Because people there know what Lucha is, and they've grown up with it, and they get it, and whatever. But in America, that was a creative and cool finish to the 500 or 750,000 people that watch cosplay wrestling, AEW. And that completely destroyed... The Lucha Brothers as a fucking credible tag team with everybody else that might ever have seen that that used to like wrestling and doesn't anymore. That kind of shit is why they don't watch it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And there we have it from Jim Cornette and Brian Last talking about that on Jim Cornette's uh, drive-through pro- uh, podcast. Well, I mean, I mean, those are two different guys, Bully Ray and Jim Cornette, commenting on the first match. For AEW Dynamite. That was the same card that had Dustin Rhodes uh, going after Mr. Brody Lee for the TNT Championship and John Moxley with a really good interview and um, <laughs> as he closed down his campaign. And, and also, that was also the same card that had Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss take on Chris Jericho and Jake Hager. <sighs> Sonny Kiss. Wow. It's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I guess the point is, is that it's about the little things. The little things are going to be the thing that gets AEW to the next level. Now, after saying all that, after Bully Ray said what he had to say and Jim Cornette had to say what he had to say, um, that show had uh, over, well over a million viewers on TNT or on the DVR uh, taped uh, AEW Dynamite. Over a million, and that beat NXT. 
So even though for the trained eye, and I guess I could say I have the trained eye, uh, clearly Bully Ray and Jim Cornette have that trained eye, it's the little things that's going to help AEW go a long way. You just can't be in a maneuver and then not sell it because say if I'm the Lucha Brothers, if they cared about it after the match, I would talk to the guys, the Jurassic Express, and go, hey, I put you in a package pile driver. So you've got to sell that move. Just like I sold that roll up, you got to sell that move. Now, if the Lucha Brothers don't care, maybe someone in the back should care. It, again, little things, little things. And even for the smart marks, if they look at it and say, oh, look, I mean, he's, he's the selling's great. Well, whatever gets over, right? Whatever makes you unique, makes you different than Ring of Honor, WWE, MLW, New Japan, whatever. Whatever makes you unique, you got to do that. And so there's some inexperience up and down this roster for AEW. That was inexperience on that Dynamite show with the Jurassic Express. Again, it might be small to some people, might be nothing to other people, but little things will help AEW uh, go a long way. You know, Renee Young, when she was with WWE, was great to watch because... Paul Heyman will tell you that it was great to work with Renee Young is that you know they had a great chemistry together. Renee Young was very good as an interviewer on the backstage show or just as an interview. I mean, Renee Young was very, very good at her job. Someone who already was a talented sportscaster and is part of the WWE. And so for Vince McMahon, it was big to put Renee Young in a position to be the first female full-time color analyst. Now, the thing that was a head-scratcher about that is that Renee Young never wrestled. And I always think that if you're going to put a reporter in the booth, that reporter has to give something that's different in the broadcast. Now, listen, I have done plenty of talk shows three-man talk shows, three people, where I was the third wheel or I was the number one person or the second wheel. I've done that in my career, and it's not easy to have just a third of your thoughts. I work with David Kaplan as we do mornings on ESPN 1000. It's a new morning show that we're doing. Uh, Wherever you're listening to us from, I hope you download the ESPN Chicago app or listen on TuneIn. We're having fun every morning between 7 and 10 a.m. Central Time. But the point is that even with a two-man show, a two-person show, I got to give half the thoughts or a little bit more than half the thoughts that I normally have in a solo show where I I have all the thoughts. And it's even more difficult when you're only a third of the broadcast. And Renee Young, when she worked on Monday Night Raw with Corey Graves and Michael Cole, she wasn't even a third of that broadcast. Uh, it was very hard to for her to get her footing doing Monday Night Raw, and I always thought that she was miscast. I think Beth Phoenix does a really good job with NXT. She is the best female uh, analyst in the game right now. Uh, I think her points are very, when she's not fed lines, I think her natural ability to be able to pontificate on what's happening in the ring is pretty strong. Um, so Renee Young her real name, Renee Paquette. Renee Paquette was on with Richard Deitch on Sports Media with Richard Deitch. It's a podcast I listen to weekly because I'm in the broadcast business and he has a lot of different media 
elites or media people that come on his show to give their thoughts about what they do for a living in broadcasting and also the speculation from writers about what's going on in the broadcasting field. So I always listen because I never know if my name's going to be brought up on sports media with Richard Deitch. And Deitch actually has been on this program if you are a longtime listener. He's a big wrestling fan. So we've had him on a couple of times to talk about the media uh, ratings and net area, that area of wrestling, um, the AEW ratings, the WWE ratings, the Fox deal. So you can go back in the archives to hear my conversations with Richard. Uh, but he got uh, the former Renee Young, Renee Paquette, the uh, wife of John Moxley, the AEW heavyweight champion. And Renee opened up and really talked about how she was miscast and her issues as a WWE color analyst. It, after such a big run-up, the announcement that you got this job, which was an incredible thing and very progressive for the WWE to do first woman full-time Raw commentator, it then seemed like something switched. Am I am I right? Or Yeah. Okay. So what, yeah, what happened? I, I mean, I certainly felt that. And could I pinpoint what it was? Not necessarily, but I mean, yeah, I definitely felt that as well, where it's like, I felt like I was kind of given the keys to the castle to like, really do some stuff, everyone was behind me, and then I think when my run on commentary was not exactly the run that everyone had thought it was going to be, not what I hoped that it was going to be, it felt like just like faith was lost, I was pushed off to go do the Fox show, and I mean that in the best way, that I was like so stoked to go do that show. Um... It seemed like, all right, put her put her back in there, let her go work for Fox, let that be the platform. And then, you know, me being moved over to being a special contributor on SmackDown, which ultimately didn't mean anything. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really felt lost. I felt like I didn't know how to handle that or like what to do with it because everything, everything beyond doing raw commentary and going to host a show for Fox really felt like a step back. Um, it just felt like I had been spinning my wheels and as a TV host and that being my strength, there was just nowhere else for me to go. And, you know, I think even too, it's like, you know, you, t- you want to look at putting me on commentary and that was such a cool opportunity. And the fact I got to do that for over a year was nuts, especially when like, you know, I, I kind of kept waiting for every day to be like, all right, to move on out of there. We're going to put somebody else in here. I just didn't really feel like. It was what anybody wanted it to be, but um, kept me in there for for the year or whatever. Um, That yeah, I think my strength is being on camera more than just being the audio of calling a wrestling match, and that's something that I found really hard because it seemed like what fans liked for me and what Vince liked for me, etc., was my ease about things and being friendly with people and having a bubbly personality. You can't do that on commentary. Um, you're calling a Brock Lesnar match where I can't be like, I don't know. He seems like he's a pretty great guy. Like me calling a match about somebody getting the shit kicked out of them. It just doesn't translate the same way. And that's fine. You know, you look at the way Beth Phoenix does it and she, obviously she has an incredible in-ring career to rely on to be able to do that. I didn't have that. So I just felt like I was lost I didn't know what my purpose was out there. Um, so it did feel like like everything just kind of got lost. My direction got lost. And then not having a, a great show for me to host on the other side of that, uh, especially after backstage got canceled, was just kind of like, okay, what are we doing here? And, you know, that, that ultimately led to my decision to, uh, to start to move on and find something else. I know, the, I know what I can bring 
to a product. I know what I can bring to a show and not being able to have those opportunities anymore just felt like time to time to go seek that out and figure it out again. One of the things um, in listening to uh, uh, Grilling JR, the podcast that JR Ross does with uh, Jim Ross does with Conrad Thompson, I'm not sure if you ever heard that podcast, a very popular one. Yeah. He, he, he talks a lot uh, because they sort of reminisce or reflect on um, old school uh, WWE or old school WCW stuff. And one of the things that Jim Ross said was Vince was always in his ear. Um, as the play-by-play person, he 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 said that he used to leave Jerry Lawler alone to sort of be spontaneous, but but he was always being produced in his ear. How often were you hearing producers in your ear when you were on the the commentator desk? It was so it's kind of a mixture in the sense that we obviously all of us were getting stuff in our ear from producers to Vince to whatever. I mean, there's always a ton of shit coming through our, our headsets, um, but you know, in terms of like reacting to things naturally versus having like a line fed to you, which like, honestly, one of my biggest issues when Vince would feed me a line for something is that I couldn't hear him or like understand him. Uh, so that I would always be like, wait, what? In trying to like get him to repeat it on like the little spy cam on the commentary desk. So it just always felt like a bit of like lack of communication or like, um, you know, even when I wanted more direction to be produced in different ways, I don't feel like I was really getting that. Um, that's why I mean, it, you know, it's kind of both sides. That obviously, when you're out there, they're, they're, you're going to get production notes, and Vince is going to throw stuff your way. But there was also times that I just sort of felt like I was left out to dry. Um, that it was just kind of like sink or swim, and I was floundering. I was really floundering, and. You know, being the the A person in a broadcast for the the huge majority of my career to all of a sudden being the third voice on a commentary table when Michael Cole and Corey Graves, I mean, as we know, they've been on SmackDown for however long in a two-man booth. They don't need a third voice in there. Those two are covering everything wall-to-wall that by the time they're even been opening or like as I'm trying to figure out my confidence in that spot, there's kind of nothing to say anymore. Um, so, you know, I ended up, yeah, just kind of struggling with it in that sense of trying to find the right thing to say. And I was so hard on myself about all that stuff of just feeling like I didn't belong or that people didn't actually really want me in that spot. So that, that just made it really hard on me. One of the other things that you had to deal with that essentially maybe no other commentator had to deal with is your husband is part of active storylines. So he's, he's Dean Ambrose in the WWE. You're calling matches. And what was always weird to me as somebody uh, watching this stuff, and I felt for you, is there would be some weeks where it seemed like your direction was to call this straight as if you are – um, how do I say this? Like, like you are independent of what Dean Ambrose is doing in the ring. Then, like the next week, you're being asked as as the real life wife of John Good what you think about Dean Ambrose's ex. To me, it's just like that puts you in an like an impossible spot. You're flipping from kayfabe to like real and back again, yeah. and, and so I wondered. <laughs> It, I my wondered. Head was spinning. My yeah, head I was just going to say, like, if my head was spinning as a viewer, your head had to be spinning as the person doing this. Oh my god! Well, it's like okay, so you even look at it from the point of view that the night that my husband re-debuted as a heel, he debuted as a heel, and I'm like, 
fucking squeaky clean baby face commentator that people know that I'm married to him that I'm like, what can I say? How do I help get his character over in this spot as an inexperienced commentator in that position to begin with? And yeah, it's like some days it would be like, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to address it. Just call the matches as they are. And we would go into the show. But then all of a sudden, Graves is being fed lines to ask me about what goes on at our dinner table. And what do we talk <laughs> about when we're at home? Right. So I'm super unprepared for how to navigate this. And also knowing how important this room was going to be to my husband, how much time and effort he really put into wanting to make that a success. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I'm going to be the one that's going to, like, trash it and make it, like, you know, not this great thing that it could have been. So it was just like, oh, my God, so much pressure to try to get all that stuff right. It was it was a lot. Renee Paquette, the former Renee Young, Renee Good, whatever you want to call her. Renee Young was great in WWE, and she'll get back on her feet, as you well know. She's not working right now. And, by the way, if you want to catch that full interview, it's... Um, it is Sports Media with Richard Deitch. It's a long-form interview, and it's a really good one where she really talks about the inner workings of working with the WWE and uh, some of the relationships that she is going to miss from her time in the WWE. So it's a really good interview. Richard Deitch has a great interview with her. Um, uh, just one note on that. I want to play that for you because, well, it kind of tells you, once again, the inner workings of the WWE. And that's why so many people are pushing AEW and pushing them to be the best brand that's out there or a different brand that's out there because the WWE is it's always so scattershot on what they do. You know, I got a problem with the AEW broadcast team, but I have a problem with the WWE broadcast team as well. Why is it that on the 14th of September that Michael Cole, the voice of SmackDown, is back on Raw? Like if you are just not a Michael Cole fan, you're happy to just watch Monday Night Raw, watch uh, Tom Phillips and that grew, crew with Samoa Joe and Byron Phillips, and never have to worry about Michael Cole. But here's Cole coming over from SmackDown to Raw with Byron Saxton and uh, MVP or Dolph Ziggler. Just you know, it just it, they can't settle on someone else besides Michael Cole to really give us something different in the broadcast booth. It is such a mess. Michael Cole, you know, it's funny with Jim Ross. Uh, this is how Vince was with Jim Ross. Jim was one of the first broadcasters of SmackDown when SmackDown first came on the air because I'm just used to Jim Ross being there. And then Jim, after at some point, was just like, okay, clearly um, – I'm doing too much. I'm the head of talent relations. I'm doing Raw. Now you want me to do SmackDown too? And finally, he was able to wiggle out of that and put Michael Cole in that spot. But man, that's just, it's just, it's that broadcast crew is just way too much. It's just uh, the WWE, it's, it's too much of the same. You know, that's the other thing too. Cole's never going to deviate from how he's being produced. And Tom Phillips falls into that Michael Cole category. It's really a shame. You want to hear something different, a different cadence, a different style from a play-by-play guy. Could you imagine if every Fox broadcaster for the NFL sounded like Joe Buck? Every baseball broadcast sounded like Ernie Johnson doing the play-by-play for TBS. And he did the play in all, in like five or six different Ernie Johnsons doing baseball. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be great. 
right? All the, all the broadcasters sounding the same. You know, for college football, every broadcaster sounded like Chris Fowler. Every one of them. No Tim Brando, no no difference and no variation in the broadcast. That everyone sounded the same. Well, that's the WWE. Where they might make sure all their color analysts had the same sound bites and their play-by-play guys do the same thing with the stupid hand gestures to saying nonetheless 150 times to uh, using the word momentum 155 times in a broadcast. These these different buzzwords and the different cadence uh, that's no different than anybody else. Everyone's the same. Right? It's like clones of Michael Cole. That's really unfortunate for Cole because that's going to be his legacy. Let's go to Miro. So Miro, the former Rusev, Rusev Day, no, Miro Day in AEW. He was introduced by Kip Sabian uh, on AEW Dynamite as the best man. Because Kip Sabian is getting married and he's wanted to introduce his best man. And the best man was Miro. Once again, moments like this, you wish there was a full crowd, not the 700 people that was at Daily Place in Jacksonville, way up high in the uh, second level in the balcony. You wish this was 10,000 people, 5,000 people in a full arena, seeing Rusev, the former Rusev, now Miro, just come down the rampway. He'd get a huge ovation. And in this situation, there was applause, sure, but... Imagine some of for some of these reveals that AEW's had a full arena, like when Matt Hardy came and and when Mister Brody Lee came. If that was in Rochester, New York, wow, how big would that be? But in the pandemic, everything's at Daly's Daly's place, uh, and for WWE, everything's at the Thunderdome in Orlando. It's unfortunate, but here we are in 2020, right? So Miro opens up the promo. We're not going to play the promo, but we'll get his reaction. So he opens up the promo talking about, you know, how he, through 10 years of WWE, he was trying to break through the glass ceiling and trying to grab the brass ring. I know those are WWE buzzwords. I know what those are. You know what those are as well. Um, because... Vince McMahon tells his talent, hey, you got to break through the brass the glass ceiling, pal, get through the glass ceiling. You got to grab that brass ring and you could be the main event of WrestleMania, pal. You could be that guy. God damn it. All, you know, all that stuff, right? We've heard that for a long time. That's good shit. You could be the, I could see you as the heavyweight champion, WWE champion. God damn. Like all that stuff, right? Well, didn't really happen for Rusev, Miro, didn't happen for him. So now he's in AEW, and his wife is getting squashed on Raw. And I bet she's going to get squashed for a long time. I think she has a three-year deal, three-year plus. <laughs> she's going to get squashed while Miro's in AEW. His wife's going to pay for that, for, for, for Rusev, Miro, going to AEW. Some thoughts from Miro on Busted Open with Bully Ray talking about why did he use those WWE terms, the brass ring, the glass ceiling. Why did he do that? Why was it so important for you to get out the line about taking the brass ring and shoving it up your I know why. I'm sure Mark knows why. But can you tell our listeners why it was so important to you? Um... You, you gather feelings over the years, and I've always been. If you watch my mirror Twitch, well, I'm usually I'm always very really positive. 
I never, I never like talk bad about somebody just because, you know, don't stone anybody because we're all done bad stuff, right? But it's just a certain time when you just, you put all your heart and soul into certain things and you just don't feel like it's coming to fruition because of one reason or another. Uh, it, it was just so disheartening over the years. So I had to, and thank you to Chris, I had to, I didn't have to, but I had to, I went, I went and saw Chris before that. It, because Chris, who's very promos and then Chris Jericho, uh, I told him kind of my idea. He's like, oh, you should say, you know, about the, uh, about the brass ring. And I'm like, I, I got legit like, whoa, like, no, like, uh, do I ask for permission? Do I ask for forgiveness after? He's like, no, dude, you don't have to ask for anything. You just go ahead and do it. It's a good promo. And I was just like so shocked because I'm so used to different, different style. Um, so it was very important for me to say it because I actually meant all these things over the years. I've gathered all these emotions that I needed one little second to express my frustrations for the past 10 years. And now let's move on. Let's forget what we did. Let's forget everything. Now let's start AW Dynamite, the best man, Miro, keep saving. Now let's let's go ahead and, and, and kill whatever we can. So that was kind of like a cleansing to you. Like you got it all out and now you can move on. Absolutely. I don't, I don't want to talk about them anymore. I've never, I have no sick feelings, no bad feelings at all. I'm, a, I'm in a great position. Everything is God's word. So it doesn't matter what happened. Everything was meant to be. Uh, you know, it's funny about uh, AEW. <laughs> Tony Khan never says no. He goes to Chris Jericho, Miro, and says, are you sure it's okay for me to say this? Oh, yeah, it's a fire promo. Just go ahead and say it. Chris Jericho is who Miro talked to, and Chris Jericho, I guess, cleared it. Tony Khan's all for it. You, what, a, what a boss. Never says no. It's great. All right, let's go to the mailbox segment. The mailbox is open for your questions. Let's go to my guy, CTJ14. Part of the CTJ report. Google that, kids. Follow him on Twitter at CTJ14. I noticed a preview for SmackDown during the Bears Lions game that had Sasha Banks responding to Bailey's beatdown. I keep thinking that they're going to fast track this feud instead of the slow burn. It's been an issue of WWE pertaining to storylines in general. Your thoughts, my thoughts are your thoughts, is that. You have time to be able to lay these storylines out. Now, the Sasha Banks Bailey story lasted a long time, which is so uncharacteristic of the WWE, my man. But um, I would prefer the slow burn. Um, these two don't have to touch until December for me or January, but I know that that's not going to happen. They're going to try to fast track this thing. And I don't know how many matches they will have now. Will it have, be one big match? Usually in a feud like that, it's three or four. And the climax is supposed to take place in the cage. And of course, that's traditional wrestling. Uh, but uh, I would like to see these two go after each other. But as I've always said, it's not like we've never seen these two wrestle before. That's why this is so strange. Like, okay, so they have broken up. Okay, so what will they do that I have not seen before? That's their challenge. That's my challenge to them. Because it's not like I've never seen Bailey versus Sausage Banks before. Ted Z, my guy, Hammond, Indiana's own. Raw Underground has potential because it's different, but 
isn't it missing a storyline? Should Dominic Mysterio turn on his dad and work heel to gain some traction? Uh, his in-ring work is impressive, but he doesn't seem dynamic enough on the mic to go far as a face. Well, look, if he is a heel, that means that someone would have to speak for him, right? If he's a heel, that's one of those things where you'd have a manager in place to speak for him. Dominic Mysterio is a really interesting wrestler. Now, again, you think about second-generation wrestlers. Dominic Mysterio for what he's been able to do is far ahead of a lot of guys that have been second generation wrestlers. Um, so I, I keep seeing this like, Oh, Dominic's going to turn. And I'm like, if he turns heel, is there a different gear from Dominic that I have never seen before? Does he have a mean face? He seems like the nicest kid. I don't know why it's necessary to turn uh, Dominic in that spot because he looks impressive. And if he does turn on his father, is Ray versus Dominic the match you, we all want to see? Is that what we've been waiting for? This tall, gangly Dominic Mysterio taking on his, his short father? Is that what we want? I don't think that's what I want. I don't want to see that match. So why should he turn heel? Raw Underground does have some potential. That's no question. But um, the thing is, is that with Raw Underground... Does, why is the finish always Shane McMahon jumping in saying, okay, that's enough, that, that, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough. Okay, good, 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 good. Stop, stop, stop. Why is that the finish? <laughs> or or him just signing off. It's, it is unique, I will say that. I don't think it's garbage. I think it's very unique. I just like to know where it's going. Um, it is missing a storyline. You are correct about that, sir. Martin Harisco, Martin on Media, who's very good. On uh, the media says, am I missing something when it concerns Jake the Snake Roberts' mic work in 2020? I can't explain it, but something seems to be missing or off. Perhaps it's because I didn't grow up watching him. Meanwhile, Taz's mic work uh, representing Team Taz has been incredible in my opinion. Yeah, Taz, out of all of the 18 managers that the AEW has... Taz has been able to shine head and shoulders above everyone else because Taz can talk. Taz has the mic worked. The guy has hosted radio shows. The guy is, uh, was really good at commentary in the early days of SmackDown. And TNA, eh, not as much with Mike Tanay, not as much. Um, and not as much in AEW, not really. But definitely in those early days of SmackDown, those sound bites, when he worked with Cole, is one of the best booths in that era. There's no question about that. Um, um, but uh, when it comes to Jake Roberts, no, I, I think it's not that you didn't grow up with them. Jake Roberts is a miss as a manager. Jake has terrific mic skills. He has that, that science. And I go back to his days in world class in the 80s of speaking slowly, speaking really slowly, and speaking real softly, so that way you got to turn up the volume a little bit more, so that way you're a little bit closer to what he's saying. Instead of yelling and screaming, he's a little softer, and he speaks softly, so that way you hear exactly every word he says, and it makes you pay attention even more. So he did that for a long time as a wrestler. Uh, but him as the manager for Lance Archer is a little bit weird because... Lance has to be the person out front, not Jake Roberts. You notice the promos? Jake's always out front, right? And it's just kind of weird 
Like, I understand Jake is an evil manager, but he's got to be in the back and not speak as much. His The people he's going to manage, like Lance or whomever, have to be able to be out front. Jake is good at getting Jake over. Can he get Lance over? I don't think so. <laughs> and that's the problem. The other thing is, too, is that Jake's like 6'5". He's got his father's height. You know, Grizzly Smith is a big guy, like 6'10". Uh, so, you know, he's got his father's height, and that's the other thing. Like, a manager is supposed to be kind of a chicken shit heel manager more times than not. Well, that's Jake Roberts. And even though he can't move anymore, he's still tall and posing, just like Lance Archer is. It's kind of odd, an odd pairing, that's for sure. David Hogan on Facebook, facebook.com, Jonathan Hood says, Thoughts on WWE bringing Sasha back so quickly, holding off until the Rumble, hopefully in front of a live crowd, would have been a bigger deal. I agree with you. Uh, You don't have to rush these storylines so quickly. Um, Something that's missing in pro wrestling today is anticipation. There's a lot of things that are missing in wrestling today. And that doesn't make me old school. It's just I'm looking at it from a storytelling standpoint, David. The, The anticipation. Like, when is Sasha coming back? And then weeks go by, you say, when is Sasha coming back? She's radio silent on social media, haven't heard anything from her, and all of a sudden she just pops up. Like, in a month later, or two months later. Or they do vignettes where she's living her best life, doing something else. She's not even thinking about wrestling. She's still salty about what happened with her and Bailey. And so you do the vignette, and then she just falls off the map. You don't hear from her, and all of a sudden, anticipation. When will she come back? And then all of a sudden, she comes back when you don't, when you least expect it. So I agree. Jeffrey Wright says, "Why has WWE SmackDown gone downhill so much? There are too many heels, uh, both on the men's and women's sides, and not not enough good storylines. Too many heels on both the men's and women's side. Well, yeah, well, the WWE has a hard time building and making a babyface. I mean, Dominic Mysterio in 2020 is the best babyface that they have. Yeah, they make a lot of heels and a lot of shades of great characters, uh, but they're not very good at uh, being able to find babyfaces and shine up babyfaces. There's no, you know, you're right about that. Uh, SmackDown. Well, I mean, you got Bailey versus Becky to start with. Um... Uh, but I, you know, you, you have to ask Vince McMahon and the writers why SmackDown's gone downhill so much. Uh, I tell you one thing: if I was Fo- if I'm Fox, I'm pissed off, and I know that that the WWE is going to um, that they're going to be on Fox and their Fox properties for a while, but. That's not what they paid for. <laughs> they like the idea that they have wrestling on, but I mean that. First of all, it's a tough television night. But secondly, it's Friday night, man. You got to be able to put some great matches on every now and then. And they're just kind of just peddling upstream with just average to below average storylines in wrestling. I agree. I agree with that. Uh, Let's see. David says, your take on what is going on with Matt Hardy and AEW. Jericho and Khan appear to be on on a different planet versus where Matt and his wife are on the extent of his injuries at All Out. Well, it's funny how, uh, (laughs) it's kind of funny 
how they put Matt Hardy out there in this past Dynamite last week to say, hey, everybody, thanks so much for your support. I'm doing well, and uh, I'm going to be champion one day, and I'm feeling great. They put him out there just so you know, like, he has no hard feelings to the company. Like, he's doing fine. It was completely wrong, though. It was completely wrong. When he had that match with Sammy Guevara all out, um, he that match should have stopped right there. If Even with Vince, even with Vince... And we know Vince and how he thinks the show must go on. But even Vince in 2020 would have stopped that match. And it would have continued at another time when Matt was really cleared. The idea that Dr. Sampson looks at Matt Hardy as we saw Matt Hardy in that pay-per-view. And after three minutes takes the test and says, oh yeah, yeah, Matt's ready to go. For him to climb up, climb up on that stanchion and for him to do that spot with Sammy Guevara was just nonsense. That should not be a Tony Khan call. Uh, that should be uh, credible doctors. Now, again, I was not there and you were not there as well, but we could see the video. The guy could hardly stand. That guy had a concussion, but yet he was able to continue the match. And that's why last week on TWT, I said that to me, Tony Khan had his markout moment. He looked at Matt Hardy. He's like, oh, I can have my Mick Foley in Pittsburgh on top of the cage, hell in the cell moment. And that's I just think that's wrong. You don't do your talent like that. Matt Hardy was just going to go full steam ahead anyway. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. It was it was just completely wrong. Um, yeah, different planets, that's for sure, Dave. Um, Doug says, what is the end game with retribution? I don't know. It doesn't sound like much to me. At first, when you I first saw it, I said, "Oh, this is this could be very interesting." And now I look at it, and I'm saying, "Whatever's going to happen, whatever the reveal is, it's going to be disappointing." <laughs> That's what I think. It's just going to be disappointing. I'm not. I'm looking forward to anything with Retribution. What's the end game? Uh, if it's a, just a bunch of wrestlers that have not been utilized properly, you know, led by Mojo Ra- Raleigh, I I couldn't care less because. If they're doing all this damage, they should be able to have the same type of traction, the same type of uh, influence and momentum that the Nexus had. Remember when the Nexus first came out and how they were beating people? Arn Anderson said on the podcast, on his podcast recently, he goes because he was an agent for a lot of those Nexus guys. He said there was no reason why Nexus could not dominate for like a year with Wade Barrett as WWE champion. Like a whole year because those are all kids that are in that group, in that faction. And it didn't make sense for them to be cut off at the knees so quickly. Like, like they, you know, I think Arn said Wade Barrett should have beat John Cena for the championship and that they should do house shows and <clears throat> Raw and SmackDown that those, that group should have been able to just be dominant and it didn't happen. Um, so they should have a Nexus and then some type run, run if it's worth it. But if it's just like a whole bunch of just dudes and women that have been losing all this time and that now it's retribution time, you know, Doug says, what if it's Dijakovic and Raleigh and Madden and Mia Yim and, Mart- and Martinez? How disappointed is everyone going to be? Well, I'd be very, very disappointed. I mean, you can have any, you can have any um, trio or any faction, but if you cut them off after two months 
and you don't let them build towards something, what's what good is it? It's just a waste of time, right? Um, a perfect example of that is thinking about um, thinking about the hurt business, right? The hurt business. Well, the hurt business business seems like it's going well. They should keep this thing going well well into next year. I like what they're doing with the with the hurt business. I like it a lot. But don't cut it off. Let them keep rolling through the WWE because it's new and fresh. It makes Shannon it makes uh, Shelton Benjamin look credible. He's been in the company forever. It's the first meaningful thing he's done in like twenty years in the company, seemingly. So there you go. Uh, let's see a couple of more. Let's see what else we have here. James Steele says, "Where do you see this Fiend Bliss storyline going?" I guess the fiend is gonna have a friend in uh, Alexa Bliss. Um, that's that's what I'm I'm thinking. Bliss turns heel, she t- turns toward the fiend as like and they're a an awesome twosome. I mean, if Braun Strowman shouldn't have anything to do with this, Braun Strowman and the fiend, I don't want to see that match again. And. If they were going to do something with with those three, the Fiend, Braun Strowman, and Bliss, it would have happened already. Like something meaningful. Have we seen anything meaningful yet? We have not. One other question here. Let's see. Um, t- your thoughts on Kevin Owens? I feel the WWE is completely wasting his talents at the moment. Also, Keith Lee is rumored to be turning heel. Uh, do you think that how do you think he'll f- uh, fare in that role? Um, I am not, as I record this, I am not, I saw the, the cage match with, uh, uh, Dominic Mysterio and Seth Rollins, which was pretty good, by the way. I just saw the cage match, um, tonight. So, I, it's a really good match. Um, told a, re- a great story and Seth Rollins comes out on top as a victor. Um, but I, I like that match. I did not see what happened with, uh, uh, with Kevin... Uh, with Keith Lee, you know, any NXT person that comes to the main roster, I'm always skeptical. I'm always skeptical of that. And Keith Lee as a baby face could get over again without a crowd. It's hard to tell, but Keith Lee as a baby face, it worked in NXT. I don't know why it can't work long-term in the WWE. Again, a company that needs more baby faces as Jeff Owens mentioned, uh, or Jeff Wright mentioned in the, uh, earlier post. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin Owens uh, is being wasted. I don't. If he's healthy, why isn't he in something more meaningful than talk shows and doing commentary? I agree with you there. Great questions from the TWT mailbox. Again, you can send me more messages on my Facebook wall, facebook.com or uthpods at outlook.com. Thank you very much for your feedback and your questions on TWT. All right, we will return with another edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. That will take place on the 22nd of September. Now, we might have something else uh, in the pipeline. That's why I want you to subscribe to the podcast. There's always special features that might pop up that you're not expecting. You're just waiting for a podcast on Tuesday. Well, maybe there's something that happens on Thursday or on Friday. Maybe something on the weekend. You never know in wrestling, right? 
it could be some information that will pop up and it might be on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. So as always, I appreciate you uh, being part of our podcast. Uh, tell people that John the Hood Talks Wrestling. Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday right here. Thanks so much for listening and thanks so much for your support as always. Don't forget to catch me mornings from 7 to 10 with uh, David Kaplan here in Chicago on ESPN 1000. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon on TWT. Thank you.